Welcome to the Unfiltered Podcast with me, Joe Warner, and powered by Ultimate Performance, the world's premier personal training experience that delivers maximum results in minimum time. In each episode of the Unfiltered Podcast, I interview the most respected, celebrated, and controversial experts in the fields of health, fitness, nutrition, well-being, and performance to help you find the life-changing advice you need to live smarter. Remember, you can find all of our exclusive unfiltered documentaries, video interviews, and investigations at unfilteronline.com and the Unfiltered Extra YouTube channel. And now, on with the show. Chest feeding, pregnant person, menstruator, there's a long list of gender neutral terms now uh, that have entered everyday language, both in education, right up into academia and into politics as well. Do you think the use of this gender neutral terminology is the correct approach? No, I think it's a disaster. And it's denying biological reality that we are cohesive humans that come who come into sexes. There's and the sexes are meaningful. Male and female capture um, those terms, those uh, the fact that there are two reproductive classes across organisms. That doesn't mean that each organism is one or the other. Some are both at the same time. Some will um, be, uh, you know, born one sex and then uh, transition to another sex, certain types of fish. Like there's so many different kinds of organisms, but still there's male and female and they're meaningful categories. And this relates to what we were talking about earlier, which is the fact that the existence of those categories does not by itself undermine anyone's rights. However, it it is a biological fact that is extremely powerful. That is why I wrote a book about how we're different from a you know n- biological point of view. And if we attempt to erase those the those differences and erase the concept of male and female, we lose the ability to discuss any issue which has to do with that reality, like the fact that only women have babies, only women uh, breastfeed. And that basic difference between women and men has huge cultural implications. Only women, for the most part, and and for the most part, only women um, fear being raped Almost every time they're out alone by themselves, you know, in a city or in on average after dark, women have a constant fear of sexual assault. That's just something that we live with and we have to uh, design our lives around that fact. This is because of our biology, you know, again, and men are bigger and stronger and men do not put it saying everything in the negative, which I shouldn't, but men, you know, do not carry the babies and breastfeed the babies. And there are so many other really important differences that need to be acknowledged for one thing. But that does not mean that trans people don't exist or that trans people shouldn't have any rights or that and it, it has very few sort of implications. Those facts have very few implications on their own for the rights of transgender people who, of course, should live without 
being, you know, without discrimination should have lives where they can freely choose how they want to live and live with dignity and have the health care that they need. Um, so the implications of, sorry, I get very emotional about all this, uh, <laughs> of, of being male or female are very important. The solution to our problems, the solution to our, these social justice issues is not to pretend that reality doesn't exist. This is dangerous. It's manipulative. It reduces our ability to understand the world and ourselves. So I will fight for retaining clear language and being as sensitive as possible to, uh, in this case, issues that transgender people face. But these, it is a small portion of transgender rights activists who are sort of militant and demanding that certain terms be used and um, even, you know, becoming very bullying about uh, towards people who don't want to use those terms. I do not believe that people should be required to use the pro, I will say preferred pronouns. I use preferred pronouns because I know that it can be very difficult for trans people to be referred to by their biological sex. But I also understand some people who have um, sort of a conscientious objection to that. And that's, you know, their point of view. I don't think you can require other people to um, sort of play into your own uh, demands about how you want to be referred to. So I think that's a difficult topic. But no, I, I think that this disembodying human beings and and starting to think of us as a constellation of disparate systems and parts is extremely dangerous. Um, I hope that that it is seems that does seem to be where we're going that you can just sort of trade off body parts and um, maybe in some cases that makes sense, but we do need to acknowledge that we are whole, individuals, we are made this way for a reason, and that there is a danger in just trying to trade off body parts. We don't know where that is going to lead. Uh, people who have penises and make sperm have a lot of other traits, psychologically and physically, that sort of work as a package. And there's a, there are reasons for that. And I think we have to be very careful about messing around with these basic uh, systems. And you mentioned in the book how it should be empowering the knowledge that testosterone has such a profound impact on, on behavior because knowledge is power. The more we know, the more we can empathize and understand each other. Hopefully, the smoother the communication, the less problems. Why do you think there is such a vocal movement that downplays the significance of sex differences on behavior? Right. So... And then, yeah, so there you're right that there is a strong resistance to the kinds of explanations that I wrote about in my book and that I'm giving you right now. I think there's some good reasons for those for that resistance. and i I under I can understand why people who are very concerned about um, equality, 
and the way that science has been used historically to justify uh, the subordination of women in terms of using science to support claims about female inferiority in various ways, whether it be um, intellectually or maybe what a woman's monthly cycle does to her ability, you know, to think rationally or those kinds of myths. So there have been the a, a lot of myths that uh, science has ostensibly su- uh, supported or ha- or has um, been used to kind of justify subordination. So I think those are good those are good re- reasons. And we have to be alert to that happening today. The way to be alert is to do really good science and clear communication about science and what it means, what the implications of our discoveries and our knowledge about the world are. So there is no discovery that I could make about the world which would justify um, outright discrimination and or unfair treatment of anyone in any particular group. But we also need to acknowledge that men are bigger and stronger than women. They're going to be overrepresented in some professions. Women want it that way. They don't want to do the work that a lot of men do. Women don't necessarily want to go and fight on the front lines in in any international conflict, in war, right? These are things that men do, typically do. And then there are also cognitive and uh, other psychological differences that might mean that men are overrepresented even in some professions um, or underrepresented uh, in some professions that are lucrative, for instance, and women are overrepresented in the helping professions. There may be a biological contribution along with social and economic contributions to those uh, differences. But the point is, if we understand the implications of how biological influences work on population-based differences uh, in these patterns we're talking about, it, this do- this doesn't mean anything about any particular ind- individual. And that's what we need to be clear about, that there's a huge amount of variation. Culture matters. And um, that's and also think what whatever is natural is not necessarily right or just. You know, those are things we have to be very explicit about. And we as a society can take that information and decide what we want to do with it. It doesn't dictate anything on its own. So people who popularize the view that testosterone is so important and so influential on behavior commonly open themselves up, especially on social media, to attacks for saying they're promoting violence, aggression, rape. Dr. Even, how often are you accused of, of of those things? And how exhausting is it having to kind of constantly caveat everything you're saying with not everyone, you know, some examples? It feels like you must be kind of having to fight a constant battle to to promote the view of science. Yeah, I guess I don't find it exhausting because I understand where it's coming from because I've been in science education for so long. And I used to just see that as part of education. Um, And yeah, I think 
that there is evidence, there is actual scientific evidence that biological explanations for sex differences, for other kinds of group differences, can lead to an increase in the in certain negative stereotypes, which can have real life uh, impacts on what people think is possible for a given group, and, and in this case, women or girls. So given that reality, you can understand why people want to play up social explanations and downplay biological explanations, because it seems like, well, there's something we can do about the social environment. But what people are failing to understand is that, well, even if males are biologically uh, because of biological differences, more physically aggressive, you know, than if men are more physically aggressive because of their Y chromosome, essentially more physically aggressive than women. That doesn't mean that they always will be. It means that we use culture <laughs> to do what we can to uh, promote like a positive masculinity and reduce violence. But we have to know what's going on first. Um, so. I'm when I encounter those kinds of views, it just makes me more motivated to do the work that I do and talk about it and write about it uh, because I, that I think is taking us in the wrong direction. That it's always better to know, to have the facts and be working with the facts if we're trying to improve. Uh, society we're living in a in a world where cancel culture is a real thing and, and you took a leave of absence from harvard after some comments you made on us tv sparked a student outcry what's it like to be in the crosshairs of that because i think for a lot of people you hear of cancel culture and it happens to people what's it like when it's you sorry um and I'm so sorry to ask the question, but I think it's- No, no, no. I'm glad you're asking because people should know it's um, personal. <laughs> you know, it's people you, like I worked in my department for 20 years. I had friends and colleagues I respected and I thought they respected and supported me. And so to, and I was doing my job and I was doing it well. And part of my job is- saying things like they're male and female are real. I it was in the Department of Evolutionary Biology. So to not be supported when attacked, uh, publicly supported and, and having my, you know, pe people who are in positions of power at academic institutions should be supporting their scholars who are trying to discover how the world works and communicate it. So the fact that that did not happen, and in some cases, I uh, I can't you know I can't talk about everything that happened, but uh, yeah, it's very painful personally. It's painful professionally, economically, and it's just sad because we need trusted institutions to you know like journalism and academia we need to be able to trust these institutions to communicate the truth uh and that's not happening there's some the values that these institutions are supposed to be promoting and defending and 
um, manifesting are, are, are seem to be crumbling. So, do you, do you agree that science is under attack, stemming from a, a need or a, a culture of telling people what they want to hear rather than the truth? And if you do agree with that, Doctor, even just how damaging is that? Not only for academia, but also for, also for social progress. Yes. So it is that is definitely happening. I don't know why I'm grinning about it. Um, so eh, because it's really happening on such a huge scale. I can't even begin, well, I can begin to to describe how it is happening in scientific journals, in the classroom, in news the way that um big news outlets like the New York Times, or Scientific American report on the supposed science. So what is being taught, what is being published, uh, what is being reported on is not the sort of a reflection of um, sort of unbiased uh, inquiry and knowledge. It is a reflection of what is safe to report or teach or uh, study what is um, the least likely to cause certain groups of people or activists uh, least likely to cause offense, perceived as the most likely to promote social justice. So it's extremely biased. It's ex- pr- uh, there's a huge overrepresentation of um, progressives or, or liberals in the academy and in media and that's dangerous because we don't that that means the science is heavily p- politicized and my field is becoming hugely distorted if if i not allowed to say that male and female are real and little kids are being taught this now in I school saw, I, saw, I saw a tweet you you commented on yesterday where kids at a school during sex education it's now they're not being referred to as men <laughs> or girls or women it's people who produce sperm or people who produce eggs and I, I i didn't know what age group that's going out to fifth but grade fifth grade okay so this is this is something that is really happening in real yes. systems across the country yes and it ties into what we we're saying about stifling academic freedom what's the end point how dangerous is this what world do we end up in where the fear of upsetting someone takes greater precedence over scientific fact and the truth about things that are so important to our everyday lives. Yeah, I think um, this it's a type of dictatorship and it's scary when a small number of vocal activists have control of language and concepts and uh, there is fear stoked in people who disagree or who are curious, who can't ask questions, which means we cannot have uh, liberal democracy because that requires an openness uh, to debate, to understand how the world works, form educated opinions, and participate in a democracy. So uh, if there's a small group that is controlling through whatever means the the language and instilling fear in people who ha- just might have questions cannot even get the facts about reality that undermines democracy and uh 
disadvantages social progress and disadvantages, I think, the very causes that that certain groups of activists are trying to promote uh, and divide society and ultimately you know, if our institutions fail, which they are actually failing, um, I don't know what comes next. Like, I, I don't know. You know, we need values. We need to train individuals, I think, in our democracy to, in or in the academy, you know, to uh, in you know, sort of a, a type of indoctrination, like in at Harvard, it should have what should have happened, what should be happening is that the most basic value is that we search for and communicate the truth. And that that should be defended and that should be promoted. And if we're not doing that, and this is just the academy, of course, there's so many other institutions, but what matters now is the individual, the each individual's values, each student's sense of themselves and their authentic selves and their own values and their lived experience instead of having an institutional value that everyone's participating in that everyone's buying into so things have gone topsy-turvy here and um i'm trying to do what i can to uphold the values that i think made sense that we should try to return to and there are uh at harvard we now have a uh, Council on Academic Freedom that some of the professors are joining. So we're making some progress and institutions should, you know, fight for their, the values that they believe in and people in charge need to participate there. So do you feel that we are seeing a shift then? Because it has felt like for a while to some people that corporations, governments, politicians, universities are in kind of constant capitulation to a vocal minority. Yeah, yes. Uh, it's such a, a, a controversial, for lack of a better word, subject that it's easier for people who traditionally we would look up to for guidance and leadership to duck it. Do you feel that we're moving away from that? Are you seeing enough signs of progress that things are returning to perhaps a more balanced or nuanced view? I, I'm sensing maybe not. And, and if not, just how lonely a battle is it to try and force the, you know, the science to be at the forefront of every single discussion on this? Yeah, I mean, it's not that the science needs to be at the forefront, but it is, you know, evidence and reason and logic and listening to people you disagree with instead of calling them names and shutting down argument. That just means that the other uh, person or group doesn't really have an argument and is just saying you're doing violence or you're transphobic. This is no way to unite people in a common cause obviously this is bullying and um it's just bad for the functioning of a, a democracy so um in terms of where we're headed i do feel that division is in political division is increasing unfortunately so there's a segment of kind of liberal progressives i'm a liberal person um and I, i'm not a conservative however i am aligned with conservatives on free speech and biological reality so there's all these group divisions that to me do seem to be increasing and i think what the first step needs to be 
to have respectful conversations with people you disagree with. I think largely everyone is trying to do the right thing. Everyone is coming from a different place, whether it be the part of the country that they live in, their religious background, their political background, their socioeconomic status, their ethnicity, uh, sexual orientation, you know, transgender status. All of these things matter. All of these things shape shape deeply people's views. And if we're just in our little silos and not listening to each other, it's just going to get worse and worse. So I think step one is conversation and not stigmatizing people who disagree. I was hoping to speak about toxic masculinity, and it feels as though sometimes any kind of traditional or established male trait, even bravery or risk-taking, can get caught up in in a catch-all term of, of being you know, toxic behavior. How worried are you? You mentioned you know, you've got a 14-year-old son, I've got a two-year-old little boy. Oh. How, how worried are you about the world in which young boys and young men are growing up being told that their natural behaviors are are toxic and which could obviously lead to suppressing certain behaviors, then being confused about their feelings, their emotions. How big an issue is it with toxic masculinity as a concept affecting young men? I think it's a huge issue. And I think it's such an important issue that that's what my next book is going to focus on. Because I think the logical consequence for me of diving really deep into male-female differences, but mostly what the sort of biological forces that shape men and understanding what happens when we change our testosterone levels, that has taught me that, first of all, anyone could have been born male. It's easy for women to judge men's behavior and challenges. And of course, some of it <laughs> should definitely be judged as unacceptable, whatever, you know, there's plenty of be behavior that's unacceptable. But that, but there has to be an understanding that men face different challenges socially than women do because of their biology. And if there is only stigmatizing of masculinity and the natural urges that men and young young men in particular in puberty say are facing if there's only negative judgment if there's shame about sexual urges or risk taking or any of the things that women don't feel maybe as strongly that is stigmatizing that help, that shames one uh half of the population for their natural impulses. No one should be shamed for how they feel. Uh, you know, shamed for how they behave is a different matter. But feelings uh, and becoming a man, you know, I think should be celebrated the same way becoming a woman is celebrated. It's wonderful. And if you have a, a high sex drive, that's a, can be, you know, a gift. You have to culturally have the support to learn how to channel those drives. And men also need to be acknowledged for the things that I was talking about earlier. Like men are the ones who are risking their lives for the most part to save the lives of strangers. And women typically aren't doing that. Some women do, uh, but men do that routinely. And that's something that needs to be acknowledged and not taken for granted. That is the flip side of being having a... a higher preference, say, for, for risk-taking and for 
um, a kind of bra- physical bravery um, that you know benefits. It's not just physical br- bravery in like a bar fight or in you know men just killing men over jealousy or something. It's a physical bravery that c- we all also benefit from, and um, that also has to be acknowledged. And we see that all the time in the news. If you just read what's going on in the world, there are so many instances of men dying trying to save others. And I'd like to hear more about that kind of thing in the news. So It's so fascinating because the whole toxic masculinity movement and and may potentially alienating young boys, driving them towards social media influencers who are promoting misogyny and other views. I think you you so easily can get caught in this vicious cycle of trying to tell boys what they're doing is wrong. They don't know their place in the world. It's driving them towards people who can try and tell them what their place is. And then you can just re- just recreate this awful, ugly, kind of un- underground almost social media cult. Yeah. Boys are, are getting even more confused about their role. Yeah, I think you're right. And I have a lot of work to do to try to figure out what, you know, we culture as a culture can do to better support boys. But this is something that, you know, historically and even in deep history, a lot of cultures have recognized um, that there has to be strong cultural norms to kind of channel in a positive way that masculine energy. And I think that's super, super important. And that requires us to be able to talk about it, to do research and and talk about it honestly in a way that um, doesn't result in people just saying, well, you're legit about legitimizing bad male behavior. That's not what it is at all. And if um, we have to be able to talk about, again, what the implications of biological differences are. What fascinated me was on that similar vein was the emotional response and how you gave those examples um, of, of women who transitioned to men were, were given the testosterone and suddenly didn't have access to the appropriate emotional yeah. response. It was almost like you had a rainbow of potential emotional responses, but then suddenly it became very black and white and, and anger or kind of frustration was the go-to emotion. Is that something that... As a society, as, as men in relationships with, with women and vice versa, would hugely benefit from an understanding that maybe sometimes we don't have the emotional vocabulary as a man that would help facilitate a better conversation, or vice versa. How you know you could be better understanding of someone if you understand their motivations, their desires, their needs, their all of these things. Do you think that's something we're maybe missing? Something really important in how we're all different, but how we can communicate better. Yes. Definitely. And I think this is uh, part of the value of understanding who we are biologically, that this is not just socialization. Socialization is extremely important. You know, I I cannot emphasize that enough. The gendered culture can mold, you know, or and reinforce or uh, inhibit to a certain extent, you know, different kinds of uh, population based patterns. But, and and there are plenty of men who are extremely emotional, who cry a lot, who understand themselves and can articulate their emotions. But the point is that relative to women, men on average are much 
I don't want to say worse because I don't want this to be a value judgment. And I think that's part of the problem is that the way, the different way that men understand their own emotions is stigmatized. And the sort of, that's the masculine way. And the feminine way is held up as somehow more uh, moral than the uh, masculine way. I think that's you know, something we could discuss, but I think that is by in itself is problematic. However, yes, I think if we understood that we come into the world with different predispositions, and it's not that men do not have the feelings that women have, it's that, um, well, maybe it is actually, <laughs> maybe it is to a certain extent, but uh, women do tend to be more empathetic than men. Women do tend to be able to understand and articulate their emotions in ways that men uh, sometimes struggle with. Again, this can have a this can be uh, heavily influenced by culture, but these differences are are present around the world, and they do change when people take or block testosterone. So men um, are less, may feel strong emotions, but yeah, the uh, predominant emotion when felt strong strongly can sometimes be frustration and anger. And I just want to give an example of my 14-year-old who is not an angry kid. He's a gentle uh, young man, I guess at this point, um, he, I've seen him get more frustrated recently and feel angry at himself in response to anything that stands in the way of his achieving some goal. And he, I've seen him like bang his fist when playing chess, when he messes up in chess. And I hadn't seen this before in him. And so we talked a lot about it and he described feeling frustrated and angry most intensely when he can't achieve a goal, when something is blocking his way to achievement, whatever it is he wants. Uh, and I thought this was really eye-opening and fascinating that this is part of male reproductive strategies in a way it's a little bit different from female reproductive strategies, which have to def do, I'm sorry, have to do more with nurturing. Females are also competitive in our own way, but testosterone does seem to have this effect, which is present also in trans men, of uh, putting the individuals somehow more in touch with those fr feelings of frustration and the, the frustration isn't met with tears. It's met with, I'm going to get this. I'm going to do what I need to do to get this. And it may be you have to, you know, evolutionarily had to compete with other males to to um, elevate in a status, your, your position in a status hierarchy, which from an evolutionary point of view can increase access to mates. That's more important for male reproduction than it is for female reproduction. The, the rubber meets the road in terms of trans issues is elite sports and competitive sport. And your book beautifully explains 
you know, the advantages that testosterone bestow upon men in terms of athletic performance. What's your comeback to people who say that athletic differences in gender are purely cultural or environmental? Yeah, it's totally, it's just, I don't think they, I think they're disingenuous <laughs> if they say that. Because, of course, everyone can see that men are bigger and stronger than women on average. So, and what that doesn't mean is that all men are going to be at all women in sports. And that is, a, I think, a ridiculous comeback, if that's what people are saying. And it, there are people who um, are able to publish articles in uh, high-profile outlets and uh, go on the BBC who say, yeah, who say what you just said, which is that this is psychological. Women aren't trying hard enough. That's, that's one, um, response, but the, so I do, I just think that's ridiculous because there's so much evidence that testosterone increases muscle mass, increases hemoglobin, increases bone density, increases height, uh, you know, strength and power to an enormous degree relative to women. And it, I mean, it depends on the sport, but you know, there's like a um, 10 to 50 or even 60% advantage of men over women. So then the question arises, well, to what extent is that, does that advantage uh, dissipate when testosterone is blocked. Those advantages, advantages accrue during puberty. And I, I I describe in a fair amount of detail in the book exactly how that works and why blocking testosterone does not undo those advantages. And there's clear evidence that those that the full advantages are not retained because if you block testosterone, you hemoglobin for one thing is reduced to female levels and hemoglobin makes a big difference in terms of VO2 max and powering um, the uh, muscles used during exercise. So that drops, muscle mass drops too, but it drops nowhere near the, you know, depending on the part of the body you're talking about, 40 to 50% advantage. So strength advantages, muscle advantages, height, bone density, those are all retained to some degree. That doesn't mean that they don't decline. But so given that, but given that, you know, people then start arguing about the evidence that the advantages uh, are actually some some people will argue. Well, no, the advantages uh, basically disappear, and there's no, or they'll just say there's no evidence that trans women retain um, an advantage over natal women. But first of all, I think that's wrong. I think there's evidence of a clear retained advantage. But the question I think we should be asking is why open up the female category to uh, people who are not female in the first place? What is the justification for doing that? So the argument from the trans activists seems to be it's the onus is on people who want to keep the female category exclusive to females. The onus is on them to show that there is a retained advantage in trans women. 
And I would say, no, it isn't. The the sexes are separated for a reason because women would never win in the elite categories. So right now, I'll just say high school boys blow away uh, female Olympic world records in all kinds of track and field events. High school, you know, 16, 15, 16 year old boys can beat Olympic gold medal women, um, depending on the event. The, the advantage is enormous, right? And so I would say, no, the onus is on the trans activists who want, they are males, uh, to, to um, participate in the female category. They need to answer, why should the female category be open to males? regardless of how they identify and i hate to i hate to even use the word male for trans women but if you're talking about bodies which we are here because sports is really about yes it's about psychology but it's about the capacity you know physical capacity um it's a female category that means it ex- specifically designed to exclude males so if you're going to open up the category um I think there needs to be a reason beyond how someone identifies, unfortunately. And I know this is pa- very painful for people, but I don't see that that any male has a right by virtue of how that person identifies to compete uh, against females, even if that male is not winning. That's not the point. So evidence that a trans woman isn't winning anything is not evidence that they should be admitted into a female category, in my view. It's one thing at the elite level where you're potentially taking away someone's chance of success, but then in combat sports, there's a, there's a danger. There's a safeguarding issue as well, where you could be pitted against somebody who, as you've mentioned, has stronger bones, more muscle mass, all these other aspects. It's also trickling down. I think this is more of a North American thing that we're seeing in Europe where it happening in in high school and college at university where you're getting trans girls competing against girls in all numbers of sports where where should we be looking at this from a purely safeguarding protection point of view to ensure not only does everyone have the right to fair competition but people are actually not endangered yeah there i i guess Sorry, I just also want to make the point that this is about males who have experienced male puberty. So there's a different issue. There's a lot of kids are now taking hormone puberty blockers and then transitioning so that they never experience their natal puberty. So if a male experiences an estrogenic puberty as a trans girl, then I think all bets are off. You know, then I think we need more evidence, but the evidence that I have seen um, suggests that there may be the ability for fair competition there, but there's also potentially some effects of gestation, high, you know, very high gestational testosterone in, in males. So I can't say that for sure. Um, but yeah, I, I am not an expert on the policy part of this. You know, I can talk about the science and um, so I do, I, my heart does go really go out to 
trans girls in particular in high school, because that is such a difficult stage. However, I also know um, athletes who, high school athletes who are very serious, who've competed against trans girls and are extremely upset that they are uh, required to do that. Those girls are very serious and the the athletes I've talked to are very serious and feel that their opportunities have been taken, serious opportunities have been taken from them. They may not want to share a locker room. So I feel like if any females do feel encroach, really seriously encroached upon, that has to take precedence. It's a female category, it's safety, it's privacy, and it is in fact a female category. So while I do have a tremendous amount of sympathy for trans girls and what they're that situation that they're in, I don't know how to solve that problem unless they just have an open male category, which I I think it shouldn't even be an open male category. There should be a protected female category and then an open category for everybody else. And uh, that I think would solve a lot of problems. It feels as though there's so many, whether it's not a vocal minority or interest groups, the one thing that seems to be lacking from this conversation is nuance and understanding and empathy. Do you feel looking into your crystal ball that some of the issues we've discussed, not just with elite sport or high school sport, but the conversation in general, do you feel that we're moving in the right direction or do you feel that we're moving further away from from understanding and sympathy? Well, I think with the what's going on in the states with between Democrats and Republicans is unfortunate because each side is becoming more extreme. So that is not conducive to nuanced conversations because people are so angry uh, at the positions of the other side. So I don't think that the trans rights activists are helping their cause because they're making some extreme demands like males you know should compete in women's sports or have access to women's prison cells which they actually do now and um those that those demands may be a little bit too much for people who might previously have been open to nuance and then they might lose their desire for nuance because they feel they have to push back really hard and i think that's happening on both sides um uh, so the political divides do seem to be increasing. The Republicans are um, promoting some bills that would outlaw uh, trans treatment for transgender adults, like cross-sex hormones and surgery. And I think I think that you know these are adults, and if they want to pay for that, say out of their own pocket why should that be outlawed so that yeah, there are some very extreme um stances on both sides that are not helping and do you see that improving or do you, do you see looking ahead and i i, I try and end every interview with a, with a positive nod if we if we can but dr even looking looking forward and obviously someone who's immersed in this who's obviously passionate incredibly passionate about the subject matter, despite all of the criticism and the blowback that you've got for for some of the opinions that you share in your book. Do you feel as though that this is a battle that can be won, that there there is a nuanced debate around such a, a hot topic? Can we find common ground where we can actually solve some of the concerns of all the different groups and, and move forward as a society? 
It's yes. Yes. So <laughs> there we have something hopeful. Yeah, I think it's possible. Um I think it's possible. And I think everyone who can say what they believe, even if it runs counter to their tribe, um, should do that and should listen to, again, just listen without judging. Listen to people who disagree with you and have conversations. And I think that's the most important place to start. And um, that's what I'm trying to do. And I appreciate that that's what you're probably trying to do also. Were there any surprising findings or insights um, that, that surprised you from researching the book? I'm just really interested in getting a sense of someone who comes into a project, a huge project like this, will have a great understanding of it. But can you still sometimes be surprised by what you find, just how convincing the evidence is or, or flip on the flip side that maybe something isn't convincing as you first thought? Yeah, it's easier to start with what was um, <laughs> convincing and surprising. So those, those are two different things but i think one of the uh something that i was surprised by during the research and is but even more uh talking about the book especially with transgender people who had transitioned hormonally so it's one thing to read about the effects of hormones and read these studies that even reading studies on transgender people who have either um, born female, lived in the female sex role, you know, social role, and then taken uh, male typical levels of testosterone. You can read these big studies about how that changes someone's appearance, of course, but also behavior and psychology in a way. And also the the reverse, obviously, someone who was born male, lives in the male role, and then blocks their testosterone. So while I knew what the effects were, and they would sort of be what you would predict, uh, we've I think most of the people who are watching your video will have gone through a male or female puberty and know what that feels like. And that kind something like that happens when you uh, take opposite sex sex hormones after going through your own sort of natal puberty. So what surprised me was not just that for males who transition, um, so trans women, uh, that for trans women, the sex drive plummets. And, you know, these, what I'm describing is these are not universal changes. These are changes on average. There's lots of different, you know, ex kinds of experiences. And then for trans men, so females who are transitioning to living as males, the sex drive increases. So I, maybe this is most interesting to, to me as a woman. The not, not only does the sex drive increase, but the nature of sexual desire changes significantly. That was one of the most interesting things that I learned. What really surprised me about especially in conversations with transgender people who had hormonally transitioned was the um trans women describing sorry sorry back up trans men um so people who had been born female and lived most of their lives in the female sex role often 
resenting being the target of male sexual attention, described feeling, first of all, overwhelmed by the sexual urge and viewing if depending on it didn't matter if they were attracted to males or females and many of the uh trans men are uh lived as women who are attracted previously attracted to females they described first of all feeling overwhelmed in the first you know couple years of taking cross sex hormones felt overwhelmed by sexual desire but also viewed the target of their sexual desire not only as a potential romantic, you know, or as a romantic partner, but also as an object, basically, with body parts that they wanted to access and described having per very intense and persistent vis fantasies, visual fantasies of body parts of the um, individual they were attracted to. And this was mind blowing to me as a woman because women do not do that to the extent that men do. That's just a sex difference. It's everybody knows it and it's real. And women don't understand what that is like to live with. And so I've also talked to a lot of men who say that they have to constantly inhibit. And, you know, this sounds obvious to a man, I think, but I'm not to women because we don't have to generally do this, have to um, inhibit their desire. They have to inhibit their words and their actions very often in social situations and in a way that can be exhausting. And they don't notice how exhausting it is uh, until they block their testosterone. So I just talked to a guy who is in his early 70s. I know this person well. He had prostate cancer. He had to early 70s. So this isn't some, you know, 25-year-old guy. He had to block his testosterone for part of his treatment and he said he it was a huge difference in his sex drive and he felt a sense of relief that he didn't have to he sort of missed it but he felt a sense of relief that he didn't have to constantly inhibit where his eyes lingered, et cetera. So that perspective to me as a woman, I think was one of the most interesting things that I learned that you can't learn from just reading. Um, and uh, yeah, I think you could only really understand it if you go through it yourself.